And then I'm certain that there's a, a part of us that is more transcendent than the local physical body that we live in, that is, is capable of honoring and exploring the magnificence beyond what we see with our first judgment. I always say the terrestrial world, as Aristotle said, is the world of trial. The celestial world is the world of harmony. We have to expand our awareness and have a celestial perspective, holding the globe in our hands to be able to see things from the overview effect and not be trapped in our immediate reactions and, and have a celestial access to celestial mysteries, not the terrestrial histories. Getting caught in the terrestrial histories stops us from honoring the celestial mysteries. And the real celestial mystery is the mystery of love and how everything is actually trying to help people get that realization. Absolutely. We have to go broader into our awareness to grasp it. All of our physiology, all our psychology, our sociology, and even our theology is all the time to teach us how to love ourselves and others and, and, and love thy neighbor as thyself, as the Christians say. And I think that Islam and I think Judaism and I think Christianity and I think the cultures of the world, if we look deep enough into their, yeah. their own mysticism, that's look, the essence. We've got to look deep enough, John. We've got to look deep enough. For me personally, I can say that there's great value in investing in personal transformation. You need to start asking powerful questions about you know, what it, is, what it is that drives you, what gives you meaning in life. It's important for us to find the meaning in our own lives, first and foremost. It's important for us to develop ourselves, to focus on developing our human potential, because that's how we can actually go on to serve humanity, because, you know, I'm big on investing in, in, in personal transformation and personal development. And I'm big on, on the work that you do as well, simply because of the benefits I derived from it in understanding myself better, in putting myself first so that I can actually be of value to humanity. That is the best investment to yes. make. And I think that people who invest in personal development and transformation and take the time to reflect on the quality of, the on, of their own lives and take the time to resolve their own conflicts, those are the people that go on to do great things, John. I really, truly believe yeah. to some degree as well, uh, I do practice my religion in my own unique way. For me, the challenge with this conflict was really putting it out there because it was also important for me to some degree to transcend that so that I could expand and grow as a human being. And in yep. transcending that, I actually paradoxically see more value in the depth of what religion offers me at a spiritual That's level right. as well. So there's a paradox to that. And I think it's the fear that keeps us trapped in just looking at the whole world and in everything that we do through the, the lens of religion. Uh, because if God created us, then we are made from his, from the essence of that, that one spirit. And if we're curious about expanding and if we're curious about this world, then we naturally want to transcend and grow and expand continuously so that we can serve humanity. And that, that is the link to God as I see it. That is my spiritual link. That is how I connect spiritually. Um, well, if we, if, we look at the, if we look at the evolution, the anthropological evolution, and I don't mean a Darwinian evolution necessarily, but an, an evolvement hmm. of conscious awareness, we literally move from our amygdala into our more advanced areas of the brain through time. Yeah. <clears throat> and our understanding of religiosity uh, expands. It. it expands. It expands. Yes. 
But it becomes it, more inclusive and more transcendent as it goes. Aristotle talked about the mean. And the mean was the mean, the average between the two extremes. Mm-hmm. And so to extract meaning out of our existence and our experiences in existence, we were to find the upsides to our down experiences and our downsides to our up experiences to find the mean, which mm-hmm. is what I do in the Demartini method. I yeah. take the things that you're infatuated with and I found the downsides to it. The things you're um, looking down on, I find the upsides to it. And I balance them out so you can be, see both sides. We yeah. call it mindfulness in Buddhism. Sure. But it's called equi- equity or equanimity in spiritual uh, circles. And when we do, we find the true meaning behind it. And the meaning was always that grace state, that, that loving state. Love I would say love, grace. Love, love is that bo- balancing point. That's that. Absolutely. It's a state of being. Point. It's a state of being. It's a state of being, that yeah. objectivity is a state of being in the world. And I think exactly. a lot of people, a lot of people battle to understand the, this whole concept of love as well. And yes. the idea well, they of want, love. They want a romantic dopamine yeah. high and a serotonin rush instead of actually a balanced brain. State of being. State of being. That's that's what I experienced on your breakthrough. Yeah. John. Now, that's why you, I love doing that because every week every week I get to do that. Sure. I understand the benefits, but you, I think you need to explain what is the benefits of breaking through and breaking free from a conflict. Instead of sustaining it, what does it do to you physically, and and well, how does conflict, that actually impact on a, your brain as well? A conflict inside you is a, con- a conflict with others is a conflict inside yourself, and that creates in your autonomic nervous system what they call a lateralization, and and that makes your heart rate variability narrowed. So your resilience and adaptability to change and for the experiences of your life goes down. Your autonomics create symptomatology in your body to let you know you're seeing things from an imbalanced perspective. You're taken aside. Mm -hmm. I always say the second you take a stance, you become a victim of circumstance. And the moment you see both sides of the stance, you get to dance. And it's more graceful to dance than it is to be caught in a victim of circumstance. But we create that out of our own bias, our subjective bias, which is a survival mechanism. We survive with these biases automatically. In, in, in animals in the wild, when they have prey or predator, they use false positives to assume that it's there even if it's not, or otherwise they'll starve or they'll get killed and eaten by a predator. So we automatically skew things with false positives and confirmation biases and skew things when we're in our amygdala. And then we go back to the facts and take out the generalizations and get to the specific facts when we're back in our executive function. So anytime we can live by priority and we can ask ourselves resiliently, how is whatever I'm experiencing today, how is it helping me get what I really want in life, my real highest values? Yeah. We stay in the executive function. We're more likely to be more reflective. So yeah, our physiology is rewarding us with feedback and symptoms um, constantly whenever we skewed our perspectives and narrowed our minds. So our body is, 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 giving us feedback and the tension and the aging and the distresses and the unwillingness to change and the fantasies and the phobias that we live in are all symptoms of a non-resilient mind that's uh, in the amygdala's desire center. That's what makes the distinction between us and the animals. 
is that we have meaning. We have the ability to come and bring things back into balance and find the mean, the meaning, instead of be trapped in the polarities and polarized. This is nothing new. This is, I mean, I'm just passing on perennial philosophy. <laughs> it's the same thing that's been taught by great uh, thinkers through the, through the ages, I think. Well, I think you're a great thinker. You're, you're really amazing. And uh, you're a blessing. You've been a, you've been a big blessing to me in my life. And I just wish everybody will have the opportunity to break through their own conflict so that we all can save the world together and serve humanity and gain the wisdom of uh, the, the, the advantages of conflict. Yeah, the, mo the moment we actually see the order in the chaos, we transform it. Mm -hmm. I always say, until you see the order, don't expect to give the orders. Because <laughs> your, your own bias will create, there's a, there's a law called the law of heuristic escalation. And the law of heuristic escalation says the moment you try to promote something, that which is equal and opposite emerges to counterbalance it because you have a bias initiating it. And the equal and opposite bias emerges to balance it. Uh, Wilhelm Wundt, the psychologist, over 100 years ago, 120 years ago, called it the law of contrast. And Heraclitus, the Greek philosopher, called it the law of opposites. And uh, Plato used it in his dialogues. I mean, historians and philosophers have been knowing about this for, for centuries. That the moment you try to promote a one-sided event, the equal and opposite will occur. When they try to do normalization, normalization anti-normalists came about. Mm -hmm. Pro-life, anti-life. Uh, um, the, the Holocaust, what do you call the, the, the Holocaust? Holocaust? And the anti-deniers of the Holocaust. I mean, mm -hmm. you got the pairs of opposites are always there. The individual, the, 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 whenever you're gullible and vulnerable to a bias, an equal and opposite bias comes in with skepticism to counterbalance the bias to get you to objectivity and get you to objective facts. Nature has a wisdom that exceeds our own bias and eventually humbles our pride and brings us back into the heart. That's the nature of the evolvement of human consciousness through time. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the leaders involved in this conflict um, don't actually realize that they are biased? Yes, I think that's very often the case. I don't think they... they what people confuse is opinion and truth. They, 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 they'll see something that's, I would say if it, if it has an emotion attached to it, it's probably got a bit of fiction in it. And if it's centered and it's graceful, it probably has a moment of fact. And I, I, I think that sometimes we, we take our past wounds, we filter our reality, we, we have a confirmation bias on the information that we pick that supports our bias and then we gather those facts rhetorically and try to persuade another group of an equal and opposite gather of the opposite facts mm -hmm. to create a conflict, to teach both of you both sides in a dialectic. Yeah, I, I, I think that they, the, the reason I ask is because I'm convinced they don't realize they bias because both sides are talking about peace, but both sides are stuck on a narrative. Yes, so it, it kind of feels weird when I engage with, with both sides because they're both speaking the same language and it appears That's that they're on the same side. They desperately want peace. They des desperately want to find a resolution. In their, in their value system, in their yeah. opinion of what it needs to be. Yeah. I, 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 
I had a fun thing. I was at a peace conference in Austria. I was a speaker there. And uh, the Dalai Lama was there. And there's a very interesting group of people there. And I, I did a little skit for fun. And it was a little bit, uh, because I was there for three days. And there was six entrepreneurs trying to solve world problems, hunger, water, pollution, all kinds of things. And there were funders from major corporations there. Mm. And I had dinner with the corporate people the first day that, that night. And I had it with the six entrepreneurs the second night. And the, the, the theme was sustainability, which I thought was interesting. Mm. And the, the corporate guys were going, well, we're here because we need to get some good ratings on our corporation. So we're going to do some funding. We set aside some monies to help the people that are, and it was sort of a, uh, an exercise in funding and marketing and business development, <laughs> the space no. conference. No. Then I met with the, then I met with the guys that were the, the do-gooders, I call them the kind mm. of the altruist that were impoverished, sacrificing life for the benefit of other people. Right. And they were bitter and angry that these capitalistic guys were not being more generous. Mm-hmm. And they were bitching, excuse the expression, about those guys. These guys were bitching about those do-gooders. Yeah. And they were both bitching while they were in their groups. And then on the next day at a peace conference, they were all friendly. Yeah. And so I got up. I figured, okay, this ought to be fun. There's a lot of media there. So I had some fun with this. I said, um, sustainability doesn't come from disempowerment from one side to the other. What I see is some people here that can't sustain their own contribution. They they require the people that they condemn. The very people you're condemning is what you require to accomplish what you want to accomplish. Exactly. And the very people you're condemning are are required to accomplish what you want to accomplish for your business marketing and your, your, your social initiatives. I said, so neither one of you are sustainable at a sustainable conference. <laughs> yeah. Said, now, now let me explain something here. And I really, I just, I really left the place shocked. I said, how many of you have moments of inner peace? And all the hands went up at a peace conference. If you can imagine this, you know, all the hands go, how many have moments of inner peace? Of course they do. They're at a peace conference. They're going to yeah. put on that facade. And I said, great, I have moments of inner peace. Mm. How many of you have moments of inner conflict and turmoil? All the time, I put my hand up. I put my hand up. And you, everybody was looking around to see if it was okay to put their hand up and they're afraid to do it at a peace conference because it doesn't, it doesn't match the narrative that you're supposed to be in a peace conference to be peaceful. Exactly. And I said, well, I certainly do. I have internal conflict. I rarely go a day without some minor to significant Conflict. And once I agreed to it, since I'm up on the stage, then they people go, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And eventually everybody had their hand up and they're all laughing. They're in comedy because they're, they're expressing their tragedy that it's not, they're not matching the fantasy ideal that they're promoting. Hmm. So then what happens is I get up. Okay. Now, how many agree that within yourself, you have moments of calm moments of turmoil and they all went, okay, yes. So I got an agreement there. I said, now, how many of you know when you finally find your mate, the mate for your life, your spouse, this mm-hmm. partner you're going to spend your life with? How many of you know you have total peace now? And the whole place burst into laughter. 
Because they go, no, no. Precisely. And I said, and how many of you know you have moments of calmness and peace and then moments of conflict and turmoil? Mm -hmm. And they all went, they finally admitted it. And they're laughing and giggling and looking and they're nudging each other. You know, they're having fun. I said, now when you have the moments of peace, you, you go humpy pumpy, you know, you make, you make love and you have children and now you have children. And how many of you know, when you finally have children, you now have total peace. And of course the place is now in hysterics because they go, Oh God, no. I said, but how many of you have moments when you're giggling with the kids on the couch and you're playing with them and they're just, it's, it's just peace. And there's moments when they're screaming and there's yelling and there's, there's conflict. And I said, how many of you know, when you have children, there's peace and war. They go, yes. I said, now, how many of you notice when you're with your family and you have a family reunion and now you're meeting with your complimentary opposite brother or sister who's like your anti-particle, how many of you know that you have moments of peace and moments of turmoil? And they go, oh yeah, oh yeah. How many moments when you're at work, you have agreements and disagreements, cooperation, competition, you build together in groups and you have sometimes differences. And they all went up like this. And I said, okay, the first principle that I'm here to share is not how to be peaceful all the time, because I think that's fantasy. But to understand that those pairs of opposites are part of our, our life. Mm-hmm. Now, if we go to extremes, they run our life. If we work through them with dialogue, they evolve our life. So it's not about getting rid of half of it. It's about integrating them because maximum growth and development occurs at the border of cooperation, competition, peace and war, positive and negative, and all other pairs of opposites in nature. Mm-hmm. And so when I got through that, people were just kind of sitting there going, whoa, they thinking about it. Because most people's narrative is about trying to make everybody agree. And not everybody's going to agree. Yeah, I got a reaction on Facebook. When, when I was being a little bit challenging about the Abraham Accord and having a, a discussion or dialogue on Facebook, but that's not peaceful. You're not being peaceful by saying these things. I was like, no, I'm engaging. Yes. I'm engaging. And, and, and that's, but, but you require. The vision the, is peaceful the, coexistence, John. The vision yes. of the peace the camp vision. is finding a way for people to engage in dialogue so that they can be progress so they can work towards a resolution for peaceful coexistence it's not about sitting in the lotus position the whole day and like you high on lsd your body has your body your physiology Mm -hmm. which is is a mystery in itself that is beyond just some random evolvement process has what they call mitosis and apoptosis, reduction and oxidation, alkalinity and acidity. Um, it has uh, blastic and clastic effects. The brain is building and destroying. The mo- bones are building and destroying. Building and destruction is exactly what the body's doing constantly. It has red blood cells and white blood cells. It's building and destroying constantly. And it needs both of those in a metabolic equilibrium in order to evolve and to survive and adapt to a changing environment, which is constantly changed. It's a perpetual change, as Schopenhauer says. So our body reveals the same dynamic goes on in psychology and society, sociology. So I'm not here to promote a one-sided event. I'm here to promote a integration of the pairs of opposites and the values 
and the communications and the dialogues from an objective, resilient perspective, when people are perceiving the events in their life on the way, not in the way. And that is obtainable. Mm -hmm. And that's not kumbaya, hugging and kissing necessarily. It's having dialogues and working through things and challenges. You don't get anything accomplished without both support and challenge. If you get nothing but South Africa is is the best example. We're not we're not a peaceful country per se. We have our challenges. We have high levels of crime. We're still battling with high levels of inequality and poverty. We're still, you know, trying to get past the ramifications of the apartheid era. We're still fixing the country, but what we achieved is phenomenal. You know, in terms of reconciling our differences, in terms of moving from an apartheid state to a democratic state, in terms of healing the racial divides that caused so much of tension and conflict for decades. So we're not a peaceful country at all. We challenge each other. There's different kinds of conflict that we've got to get through. We have corruption. We have different kinds of conflict going on in the workplace. It's part of our everyday experience. So when I also am engaging about peaceful coexistence, I'm keeping the model of South Africa in mind in terms of improving the state of our reality, reaching the vision of democracy, you know, reconciling our racial differences so that we can have what you would say, equanimity and equality to a large degree in the country, which we've achieved under great leadership of Nelson Mandela, which is why I speak about him. Yeah. That is that something that is workable. Yes, by moderating some of the extremes, that's all. And also we created this framework for, for, for reconciling differences, the two leaders, you know, Nelson yes. Mandela and F.W. de Klerk from the white minority at the time. So there was a framework and the negotiation and the reconciliation went over a period of 50 months. So they engaged for a period of 50 months before the country was ready to go to the polls for the first democratic election. It was a process of engaging. It, was, it wasn't a process of breaking down doors. It wasn't a process of making demands. Nelson Mandela could have just went in and demanded, you know what, we had enough of you. We are the majority in this country. We need to have democratic uh, elections. But he chose engagement. He wanted the other side to understand that it was why it was important to move in a new direction. They had to, they had to find synergy with each other. That was important. If you, if you communicate what you want in terms of the other person's values, they're receptive. Yeah. If you project what you want without considering their values, they're rejective. That's simple. Yeah, and, and I mean, in, in the instance of the conflict, um, it's, you know, the pro-Palestinian lobby see it as as simple as ending the occupation, and perhaps it is as simple as ending the occupation, and, you know, putting an end to settlement activity, give the Palestinians East Jerusalem, and that's the end of the conflict, because, you know, that's the basis of ne- for negotiation. But there are a lot of peace activists who feel that it's not as simple as that, because there's so much of hate and enmity, and there are issues that needs to be worked out, so it has to be a negotiated settlement. And I see value in negotiation because that's what we went through in South Africa. It was a process of engagement. It was a process of reconciliation. And then we also had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as well, which was the healing element of moving forward as a new country. We had to talk about the injustices that took place. We had to reconcile that with each other. 
So or it's, or it's own the trades or own where we do it. That's and that's the fastest. That's the fastest way I found is to own what you see. Yeah. Hard as that may be, finding out how to own it, because otherwise you're still the victim of history instead of the master of destiny. And the advantage of that is also that you get to reflect on your own life and you get to examine all the areas in your own personal life as well. Until, until you do that, you're still dissociated. True intimacy in a relationship is the reflective components only. Yeah. If you're too proud or too humble to admit what you see in others inside you, you're not really having dialogue. You're That's having true. alternating monologue. So when you can actually do that, we did that in um, Johannesburg when we had some uh, Palestinian and Israeli uh, individuals there in the at the hotel yes, there. Yeah, we had that and meeting. We had, we had an Israeli lady who was mm. bold and and wise enough to look at herself and look at what she was judging and own that, mm -hmm. and then look inside herself and then find out who it served her, and that was very. That reflected, showed her ability to reflect and to own the traits. And it was a very mature act on her part to take that time to do it. And those, and individual, those individuals, John, however, those individuals had the sincerest of intention of wanting to work on themselves. And they had the sincerest of intention of wanting to understand the other and to, they, they wanted to see how your method was going to assist them and they had faith and they were hopeful. So there was an intention to actually experiment to, with to your method, to experience it. And they, they wanted to move forward around this conflict to reconcile differences with the other. Is that essential yeah. though? Is that essential? Is that an essential prerequisite? Because well, in my I, case I, as well, I had, I, I had the sincerest of intention and I really wanted to be on the process because I really wanted an end to the yeah. conflict I was experiencing. Well, I've had it both ways. I've had people, as you know, in the breakthrough experience, that I had a gentleman who was so angry with his father, he refused to even consider there might be a benefit to what his father's done and that there might be a reflection in his life. Mm -hmm. And he just was not willing to go there because it was too painful for him to have to admit that he was like his father. So there are people with such bias and such wounds that, I'm not going to say they can't. It just is very delicately how you handle it to start it. But I've seen people that really were uh, like a Bronco riding horse. Uh, you had to break a wild horse, you know, to break it. And then eventually get past that wildness and actually start to get to work. So I've seen a whole gradation of people over the years. But I would say out of the 100,000 people that I've used the, the method on and resolved conflicts on, I would say that 99.6% of them, um, if you approach them within their own value system, they'll go to work. This most of the people will go to work. Well, well, here's the thing, John. Both sides want peace. They're biased. They don't realize they're biased, but they sincerely want peace. So uh, there's an opportunity for you. Yes. Well, I'd be glad to, to engage with the leaders because. Prime Minister Netanyahu, there's elections coming up though, they sincerely are excited about the Abraham Accord and they gave a very inspiring speech about walking the path of peace now. And without a doubt, the Palestinian leadership wants an end to the occupation. They do believe and embrace the two-state solution. 
So there's an opportunity for you to integrate yeah. both sides' biases so that they can see how they could work together and uh, how the conflict can serve them as leaders to move both sides together. Well, if you, if you have any contacts I'll, that I might not have, then I'd be glad to um, participate and help in any way. Yeah. I know you said you can't work with the whole culture of people, but I really, I really do feel that whoever you work with will derive great benefit from going through the process. Uh, I, I, I've yet to see somebody go through the method without, at the end, who finish it. I've never seen anybody finish it and have a completion without being thankful. Mm -hmm. I've seen amazing conflicts dissolve. So it's just a matter of doing it. It's just being accountable. And the real test of whether they really sincerely want to dissolve a conflict is whether they're willing to work and own the traits and whether they're willing to look and introspect. Because it's, it's not going to come from a solution on the outside of them. It's going to come from a change inside them. Because as, as any leader knows, um, and Nelson Mandela said it in, a, in his own way, you know, be the individual that you're wanting to live the change that you want in other people. If it's not a transformation inside you, don't expect to have an impact on the people around you. Mm -hmm. And he was a great leader. Um, yeah. From my interactions with Palestinians and Israelis, there are a lot of peace plans that are on the table and not just the Oslo Accords, which is the internationally accepted framework for yeah. a resolution of this conflict. The problem is the challenges with leadership both sides are looking for leadership. How would you define what would be the appropriate leadership in this conflict situation? Well, we rarely have real leadership. What we really have is people who are polarized, um, the, the, the more extremist are the ones that are active, and then they vote for the people that justify their positions. And people will then, the politicians will say what they need to say in order to get those votes. And um, so a real leader is somebody that has the courage to walk a new path and is willing to embrace the support and challenge of the fractions. And that's rarely occurring. I would say if you really want a, uh, somebody who can unite two countries, they can't be a leader of the country. They have to be a leader beyond the country. They have to see beyond that. Because as long as they're in there and they're biased to their country, they're going to have a biased perspective by the people. So I, I say that you rarely have it. The only people really that have global positioning today are people that are not, that are global people. They're not attached to one country or one culture or one uh, belief system or whatever. They, they've transcended that. And those are the individuals that are not attached to those and can come in and actually see things objectively. The second you have a charge on something and you're biased on it, you're starting out with a bias. So it's educating those individuals and awakening leadership. I, I spoke at UNESCO where they were training delegates in France. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that most of the people there were coming in with their bias, thinking the world would be peaceful if everybody would do what their bias was. Mm -hmm. There was very little real leadership in that. And so if that's the training and that's going to the United Nation delegates and you got the same conflict just on a on a, a new title, a delegate, it's the same conflicts going on. 
So it's about educating people on a bigger vision, as you said on your last interview that I, I watched, having a bigger vision than the traction that you're dealing with in the conflict. You have to have a bigger vision. So you can't attach to one side or the other. If you attach to one side, you're already in your bias. So if you have a, what I said was have a vision for world peace, if, if the leaders could actually a hold a vision. A global vision makes a difference between two countries, but a con you, you can't be just a leader of one country. This is, this is why I think Donald actually also only got one term. He was, he was talking about America, the great America, instead of where are we going in America worldwide? Because that's, that's the narrative that a bigger narrative has to be in place. Sure. John, it's amazing talking to you. You could well, go on you, for Jim. another couple of hours. I wouldn't mind. <laughs> well, we'll have another one, I'm sure, because we, we have had quite a few times together in the, in the studios. I appreciate that. I really will appreciate that. If we yeah. could do another one for the new year. Absolutely. Maybe before I leave you, just another question. Yeah. What, what's really sad about this conflict, John? is the loss of lives and the intensity of the violence that takes place. Yeah. Um, I, what I really don't understand is why both sides see it as necessary to some degree. There's, How, a, book, there's a book called Crowds and Power mm -hmm. by Elliot Kennedy that's a classic text that is an interesting book to read about how when groups of people get into their herd mentality and get riled up by subjective bias, how they donate their individual decision-making to a group and it escalates. It's a very interesting text. It's a, it's a real eye-opener of how we escalate. And then we, anything that we, we get more and more bias as we go. And then we wanna destroy anything that's making us have to face our bias. Mm -hmm. And so killing is a, is the last ditch effort of the prey and predator mentality. That's the, that's the mm -hmm. basic of it. But what nature does also is it also is because it's inefficient, love is more efficient that it actually is reducing those people that are highly polarized that are not able to adapt and get, allowing those that are able to adapt to come in and eventually overrule that. So, if we're engaged in that and um, participating in that, we're, we've trapped ourselves in our bias. Giving ourselves permission to have a bigger vision is essential for that because that's the path of immortality, as Elizabeth Burroughs said. The path of immortality is seeing uh, beyond the mortal uh, thing. Our very, our very right and wrong moral constructs is based out of the fear of death. Yeah. And the very, the, the, the very black and white thinking we get is actually based on that mortal construct. And there may be another part of us that's a, a legacy building transcendent state, call it the soul, if you will, the state of unconditional love that transcends that, that allows us to go beyond those time and time frames. So we only want to kill the things around us that represent the parts within us that we haven't loved. We haven't owned. We haven't seen both sides to. So I think that's uh, some people have to go all the way to that extent before they finally get the cataclysmic events. Like an alcoholic sometimes has to hit bottom before they finally wake up and realize 
that this thing is running their life. And these biases are running people's lives. Sometimes they have to hit those, those crazy extremes before they get that lesson. Do you think, do you think psychologically it's, it's because they don't really love themselves, value themselves as individuals? There's no way, in my observation, that when you're wanting to kill somebody, you're loving what you're, whatever they represent that you're wanting to get rid of is you. Mm-hmm. You're wanting to kill you. When you infatuate with somebody to such a degree, you'll give of your own life for them in a sacrifice of altruistic uh, suicide. And when you're resentful to somebody is strong enough and too proud to admit what you see in them is inside you, uh, you'll do homicide. Homicide and suicide are the two polarities of extreme disownments of parts that you haven't learned to love. And this has been shown over and over again. So we, you know, when you have somebody that'll die for a cause or kill somebody for a cause, these are the most extreme polarities of lacking love or not, not honoring their own love inside themselves. Sure. Uh, there are people who do feel that loving yourselves or acknowledging the love within yourselves is just selfish nature. It's narcissistic to do so. But I'm well, of the opinion that when you appreciate the love that flows within you, you appreciate yourself as a person, you have more to give to humanity. Absolutely. Love is not narcissistic. That is not mm. the definition of love. Love is a synthesis and synchronicity of complementary opposites. It's, it's an expression of both altruistic and narcissistic perfect balances. That's true love for if you're narcissist, if you're proud, you're going to go narcissistically. If you get shamed, you're going to go altruistically. Neither one of those are, are demonstrating love because they're disowned parts. You're, you're not owning all of yourself. It's when you own all parts of yourself and you have full mindfulness, as the Buddha says, you now embrace what you see in them inside you. And now you can love somebody. And that's, it's a service in a reward in perfect equanimity. It, if we study equity theory, we know that equity theory shows that perfect balance between a transaction of give and take is what love is. Mm-hmm. Another way of looking at it, John, is if you, if you don't love yourself, if you don't value yourself, how is it possible for you to see value in someone else? Because if you value what you have to offer to the world, if you value who you are as a human being, you are going to naturally value someone else's life as well. Yes. And see value in the other as a human being. Yep. That's it. It's the disowned parts that cause the prey killing or the predator killing. So let's go teach everyone love, John. That's what you do best. Well, (laughs) yeah, but but I have to redefine love because people confuse love with romance, infatuation. So let's do the Demartini method on them so they can experience what love is, that state of grace, because that is the state of being. Yeah, I call that a, a higher level of true love, yes. And on, on that note, John, thank you so much. I love what you do. And thank you. Uh, I'm always super grateful for the impact you've had on my life. And I'm happy to be sitting here today serving humanity in my own unique way. Uh, I wouldn't well, have thought have I'd been. be doing this, but it was really important to break through. It was really important to start working through my own personal conflicts so that I could improve who I am as a human being so that I can actually offer some value to the world as well. And I think it's, it's, it's super important for us to constantly evaluate the quality of our lives. Well, I would say at the very essence of our, our being, nothing's missing. At the level of the existence of our becoming, 
things appear to be missing. The things that appear to be missing are the things we're too proud or too humble to admit that we see in others inside ourselves. When we finally realize nothing's missing in ourselves, we finally love all parts of ourselves. So that's our personal development from our personas and masks that we wear to the essence of our being that we are. Mm -hmm. Our journey is the realization that we have nothing missing in us. That's absolutely beautiful. And we're all worthy of love, as you always say. No matter what we've done or not done, we're still worthy of love. Mm -hmm. And that too, you've got to experience on the Demartini method. I, I truly believe I had to experience that to appreciate that little philosophy that you offer us every time I engage with you. So yeah. thank you very much, John. Thank you um, for the review and, and uh, thank you for what you're doing and look thank forward to you. our next. Again. I look forward to it. Look forward to it. Take care. Okay. Take care. Thank you so much. Until next time. Bye.
start asking powerful questions about you know what is it, what it is that drives you what gives you meaning in life 